Well, brothers and sisters, let's just remain standing for the, the reading of God's Word. You'll see that this week we'll be looking at verses 63 through 71 of Luke chapter 22. I'll read starting at verse 54 and then into verse 12 of chapter 23. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then, after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? He said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So our Lord has no rest on this dark night, this hour of darkness, uh, the hour of the power of darkness. But what does he do? We're going to see him again and again committing himself to him who judges righteously. May this become a watchword for all of us. What did Jesus experience after he ate his last supper? and was arrested in the garden on what we believe was likely that Wednesday evening? What mistreatments did he endure at the hands of the Jewish and Roman leaders before he went to the cross on that Thursday morning? What will we learn from the Jews and the Romans about our own sinful flesh? See, we're all quick to put ourselves in Jesus in this story don't be so quick to do that. How did our Lord respond to this string of injustices that he experiences 
in each of these little questioning events, these trials. As we move through these events, walking beside Christ, considering what he experienced, we'll be mourning, we'll be watching, we'll be learning. Will we grow up in him? Will will we become more like him as we observe this? Will we see our sinful tendency to be like the Jewish and Roman leaders, to be like these wicked soldiers we will see today? Will we see that and repent of it and become more like Christ who settled into his Father's sovereign care? So as I said, the title of today's sermon is Jesus Committed Himself to Him Who Judges Righteously. First, we'll talk about the setting. This is important. We'll do a little bit more background work looking at Matthew and Mark because you're going to see that Matthew and Mark look at a couple, one particular meeting, whereas Luke looks at another. It can be confusing. We'll talk about that. And then we'll dive into this text. We'll see that Jesus is mocked and beaten. We'll see the morning meeting of the council comes together. And then we'll see the first question with its response. And then the second question with its response the council's pronouncement, and things that we can learn from this for ourselves today. Some questions to look at. So first of all, the setting. I hope you will come to see that there were two meetings that took place. There was a nighttime and overnight meeting. There was also a morning meeting. When you're reading through the Synoptic Gospels regarding Christ's questioning by the Jewish leaders, the flow of events can be a little difficult to discern. See, in our text today, Luke relates a morning, a morning meeting of the council, starting at verse 66, you'll see. And the language that Luke uses is somewhat similar to the overnight meeting described by Matthew and Mark. So, it can appear on the surface that Luke has inverted the order of the events. But upon closer study, what emerges is that Matthew and Mark describe the overnight questioning at Caiaphas' palace, and Luke describes the early morning council meeting together that followed that. These two meetings have similar questions and similar outcomes, so they're easy to erroneously conflate into one event. But the most likely explanation is that the two different meetings are being described. Luke 22, verses 63 through 65, recount the last of the events associated with the overnight meeting, and then Luke transitions into verse 66, into the daytime meeting. So you'll see the mocking and the beating of the soldiers marks the beginning of the story as Luke tells it, but it comes at the end of what Matthew and Mark tell. And so we can see that's where the two are linked together. Bach says, there were two meetings, or perhaps two parts to a single meeting. One, an evening trial, Matthew and Mark. The other, the official declaration of guilt where the key evidence was reviewed. That's in Luke. Standing in favor of this viewer, the differences already noted between Luke and the other synoptics And in a prior section of the commentary, commentary, he pointed out that there's not very many similar words between what Luke says and what Matthew and Mark have already have said about the overnight meeting. Along with the official need for a morning trial at which official condemnation was obtained. So there are these Sanhedrin documents available, and they make clear that an evening verdict would have no weight. So a morning trial would have to be necessary in order to have a verdict with any weight, according to their law. So let's look at Matthew's description of the overnight meeting at Caiaphas' palace. And I'm going to read Matthew and Mark, and I hope that you will kind of join in to this and see what our Lord went through that night. As we come and we arrive at Luke's text, I think it's important for us to consider what our Lord has been through that night. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now recall, it's in John's gospel that we know that he first was taken to the palace, likely the palace of Annas who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. But that's not mentioned by Matthew or Mark. So back to uh, Matthew. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, the chief priests, the elders, and all the councils sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at least two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, 
It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you. See, I underline that there, because I believe that's the section that Luke links into, as we get into Luke's text today, you'll see the story continues there. Listen to Mark's description of this same event. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst, of, in the, in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it then? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. So, Jesus, our Lord, has endured an all-night pre-trial practice run before these assembled Jewish leaders. No sleep. Did he eat or drink anything? Or was his only sustenance the bread and the wine that he had shared with his disciples the night before? There are no friends standing up with him, on trial with him, to be examined with him. We know that John is somewhere nearby, but he is not on trial with him. He's alone before his accusers all night long. And we can see how it concludes. They reach a false verdict about him. And the mocking and the beating and the spitting and the blindfolding close out this overnight wickedness. And so now this links us in with Luke's account in today's text. Luke picks up the story with the mocking and the beatings. So let's, let's walk along with our Savior by His Spirit's guidance, closely observing His, His holy suffering and His holy response. So Jesus is mocked and beaten in verses 63 through 65. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. So who are these men? Well, these men are likely those who had bound Jesus the night before in the garden. They're probably pretty grumpy themselves for having to stay up all night long. They're probably hungry as well. And they're sinners. And they've been stirred up by the evil one and bolstered by the council's cries. He is worthy of death. And then they just release their sin upon Jesus. Bach says those holding Jesus are probably the soldiers, the temple guards that we saw in Luke twenty-two fifty-two. Their actions are separated from those of Jesus' examiners in verse 66. Luke describes two facets of their custody. They mock him, which is the main verb, and they beat him, which is a participle. In this context, the imperfect tense is probably ingressive, deserves the emphasis. They began to mock him, and then with the taunting comes the beating. I doubt any of us have ever taken a beating like this before. 
maybe some hazing in the military, perhaps. Who knows, maybe in, in school as a kid, some of us may have been through something like this. But I doubt really any of us have ever been through this before. This word mock is to play with, it's to trifle with someone, deluding them, deceiving them, to make fun of them. And then this word beating means to beat, to thrash, to smite, but can also carry the meaning of such a severe beating that it flays the skin open. That's what Jesus is enduring. They don't stop there, though. They decide to blindfold him. This means to cover all around, to cover up, to cover over. He couldn't see anything. Interestingly, the same word is used in Hebrews 9.4 of the Ark of the Covenant, which had, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. So the gold <clears throat> completely covered the Ark of the Covenant in the same way that Jesus was blindfolded by this garment that night. <clears throat> this was predicted in the Old Testament, brothers and sisters. This event, these soldiers who are mocking the one whose spirit wrote these words of prophecy, telling him to prophesy. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. It's Isaiah 50, verse 6. And then Isaiah 53, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. So these are holy strokes of justice. God the Father begins to rain down on the Son at this time. The one who knows all, the Lord Jesus Christ, with, with all power, who sees all, nothing is hidden from his gaze. How silly it is that you can blindfold God. He submits himself to the triflings and the smitings of these men whose lives are but vapors. Right? even accepting their blindfold. The one who is the Lord Sabaoth combines all the, who, who commands all the legions of angels. These men didn't want Jesus to see their blows coming, the one who predestined each blow. Receiving punches unprepared, Jesus here makes himself defenseless. He in his great wisdom shows us the path of victory. And he settles into his father's righteous care knowing that his father sees all and that his father judges righteously. As he is being judged unrighteously, he knows that his father judges righteously. Now, it's not just the old covenant writings that prophesy about this event but in great irony, Jesus himself prophesied this event in Luke chapter 18. Verse 32 says, For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. Jesus, the great and final prophet, had prophesied this moment. What great irony is that not for what they mock him? They are fulfilling this prophecy as they mock him. They are actually fulfilling his prior prophecy. Indeed, the father laughs from heaven at all those who set themselves up against his son. This is divine irony, brothers and sisters. I hope you see the beauty and the power and the glory of this. In verse 65, it says, and many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. So this episode here of humiliation was was way more extensive than what Luke reports in detail. But Luke chooses not to present any more of those details to us. These men unleash hell's hatred upon Christ with words 
not worth repeating. Luke makes clear who the real blasphemers are in this story. It's not Christ. It's his false judges and these evil, evil men. Do you trifle with Jesus? You think that you can hide yourself from Christ? So going on as daylight arrives, Jesus is bruised. He's likely bleeding, harassed, and sleepless. Now to face the supposedly more formal daytime trial. Matthew Henry says, How our Lord Jesus was abused by the servants of the high priest. The abjects, the rude and barbarous servants, gathered themselves together against him. They that held Jesus, that had him in custody till the court, they mocked him and smote him. They would not allow him to repose himself one minute, though he had had no sleep all night, nor to compose himself, though he was hurried to his trial and no time given him to prepare for it. They made sport with him. This sorrowful night to him shall be a merry night to them. And the blessed Jesus, like Samson, has made the fool in the play. They hoodwinked him, and then, according to the common play that young people have among them, they struck him on the face and continued to do so till he named the person that smote him, intending hereby an affront to his prophetical office and that knowledge of secret things which he was said to have. We are not told that he said anything, but that he bore everything. Hell was let loose, and he suffered it to do its worst. A greater indignity could not be done to the blessed Jesus. Yet this was but one instance of many. For many other things blasphemously spoke they against him. They that condemned him for a blasphemer were themselves the vilest blasphemers that ever were. So what happens next? Well, next comes the morning meeting. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council. It's an interesting word here for us Presbyterians. The elders here, the word is presbyterion. It's the Greek word from which we get presbytery. It is the body of elders, and it can be called a presbytery or a synod or a senate or a council. It's used in the Bible of the Jewish leaders here in Luke 22.66 and also in Acts 22.5. But the same word is then used of the elders, Christian elders, in 1 Timothy 4.14. So this council of elders come together in some kind of supposedly formal corporate assembly to rule. Now, it might have been an attempt at a Sanhedrin ruling or just some attempt to lend some degree of credence to their ruling that they would take to Pilate right after this. Either way, this is a kangaroo court, a mockery of Jewish legal requirements even likely existent at that time. Bach says the proceedings take place at the high priest's home and not in the temple. It's not how it was supposed to go. Now, these... These come from that document regarding Sanhedrin rules. This is extra biblical evidence. It's not decisive. And this document may have been written or was written a bit later than this, but there's no reason to think that these, at least some of these rules, were not in place at that time. It was a very unusual type of trial that took place. First, the proceedings take place at the high priest's home and not in the temple. Next, Jesus was tried without a defense. Um, this document, Sanhedrin 4.1, says that both sides of a case must be heard. Next, Jesus was accused of blasphemy without actually blaspheming in the technical sense of the term by pronouncing the divine name. Next, the verdict came in the space of one day when two days were required for a capital trial. Next, contradictory testimony nullifies evidence, and they didn't nullify it. Next, a pronouncement of guilt by the high priest is contrary to the normal order which should start with the least senior members. So while all of these Sanhedrin legal requirements may not have been in place at that time, it's unlikely that all of them would have been absent. The Jewish leaders are seeking the appearance of legitimacy, not true justice. 
And it's likely that they were rushing to try to get this done before uh, a Sabbath began because they would um, almost never have had a trial on the Sabbath. And those who say that the night before was actually the, um, the Paschal meal, the Passover, have a lot of explaining to do that the Jews would do a trial on the Sabbath day. Um, maybe, they, maybe they would have, but it, that's extremely unlikely that the Jews would have allowed themselves to be breaking the Sabbath like this. Uh, so it's just another piece of evidence, oh, by the way, in regards to the Wednesday evening um, what, that we discussed for the Last Supper. Moving on. Here's the first question. If you are the Christ, remember, this is the morning meeting. This is not the one overnight. This is the morning meeting. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe me. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. So, let's think about this. The night before, according to Matthew and Mark, False witnesses with contradictory testimonies had spoken up already. Luke makes no mention of any witnesses being called during this daytime council. Do you see that? Apparently, the prior evening's course of events showed to the Jewish leaders that Jesus would simply and quickly condemn himself with this one question. If you are the Christ, tell us. It's most likely that they were feeling some tightness and some uncertainty about being able to get this whole thing done in one day before the sun set. They were up all night long before. They didn't want to go through that again. They wanted to get him to Pilate quickly. Bach says, In asking if Jesus is the Messiah or Christ, Luke returns to the key title he focused upon early in his gospel. Luke will return to this title in his final chapters. The issue of Jesus' promised regal status is basic to Luke. It is crucial to remember that to call Jesus Messiah is to confess his rule, since that title is a regal one. It is Jesus' authority as the one sent of God that is in view here. Jesus replies, If I tell you, you will by no means believe, and if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Jesus here responds very clearly and directly to them, openly accusing the council of their predetermined bias and their decision they had already made against him in their kangaroo court. Their hearts and minds are completely set against him. Neither his rational answers or his legitimate questions will move them one bit from their stubborn position against him and their immovable plan to hold him and transfer him to Pilate for the appearance of a legitimate execution. They have determined to leave Jesus before the eyes of the world as condemned by both the Jews and the Romans. They want him despised and rejected by all the people. Answering them, Jesus tells them, is a waste of time. But Jesus will go on to speak the truth of himself, not so much for their ears, but for ours. Does this not remind you of Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. You see that? Set themselves. That's the stubbornness in view. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, their echo chamber, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And we see that this is actually quoted early in the book of Acts. And what's going on here was a fulfillment of Psalm 2. That's why it reminds you of Psalm 2. (laughs) Verse 69, Jesus says, he goes on and answers them, Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. So what is it all about? The Messiah, ultimately, is all about, as we've said before, Luke Acts emphasizes this, the ascension and the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who takes mediatorial reign of all of the universe. And he says to him, by pointing to that reality, yes, I am the Christ. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. So, the Lord shows forth the destination of Messiah. 
In the midst of his humiliation, at this moment, Jesus trusts his Father who judges righteously. He knows what he's going to go through. Jesus speaks of his Father's faithfulness indirectly. He speaks of his Father's faithfulness to resurrect him and receive him and enthrone him just as predicted by Psalm 2, Psalm Psalm 110, and Daniel 7. Note how he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Remember earlier on Luke, you hear Son of Man, think Daniel 7. Let's listen again to Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and Daniel 7 as it it, uh, pertains to this prophecy. Now this is the Father's response. Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall lay hold them, shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that's the resurrection right there. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. He is set up as the king over all, and his reign is defined as the owner of all things, the ruler of all things, advancing his kingdom through the earth. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. See, the rod is mentioned there in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, Christ's power. He said the right hand of power is where he points himself to. That rod is his power. And he is reigning now. He's been enthroned in that place. He tells them, that's where I'm going. Daniel 7 is interesting. And I think it's worth noting that the nighttime questioning in Matthew and Mark, Jesus brings these scriptures together. He brings Psalm 110, right hand of power, and Daniel 7 together coming on the clouds in his answer. And I'll remind you, uh, I'll read you what he said the night before. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He doesn't mention the clouds of heaven in the morning, but he did in the evening. Don't know why. Listen to Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. This is what Jesus is referencing. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. It is indeed true that Jesus Christ is the greatest king and that he rules over Caesar and that he represented an immediate threat to Caesar's reign without a doubt. And through the working of the gospel and the meekness of the people of God over time, What happened in Rome? Jesus Christ conquered Rome. Now they thought it was going to be with a sword and with violence and they they were afraid that he was going to do something like that immediately. They didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. Jesus understood. Jesus was pointing to that when he gave that phrase. So he said, yes, I am the Messiah. And he said much more in the way he responded, pointing to the nature of his kingdom and what he would accomplish. But they still didn't get it. Because technically, he didn't actually refer to himself, if you look at verse 69. So they said, are you then the son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. So there's when he finally gives the definitive answer. They need more certainty from Christ's words in order to condemn condemn him. His prior statement was more of a theological statement and wouldn't, couldn't, might uh, perhaps not technically be about himself. So they ask him. They ask about his identity directly. And he answers them. And he says, you rightly say that I am. Jesus here declares himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah, unequivocally. And what do they do? Do they stop and say, well, we should consider maybe he is. What evidence do you have, Jesus, to show yourself that you are the Messiah? Maybe we should consider your claim that you're the Messiah. No. Their bias that he already told them about comes out. They said, what further testimony do we need? 
For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So there's their bias. Never even considering the possibility that Jesus is telling the truth. Just as he had predicted. They just assumed every word coming out of his mouth was a lie. They were unwilling to listen to anything that he said. And he even said, if I question you, you won't listen to me. They're going to take every word that comes out of his mouth as evidence that he's a liar. Matthew Henry says, It was true. They needed not any further witness to prove that, that he said he was the Son of God. They had it from his own mouth. But did they not need proof that he was not so? Before they condemned him as a blasphemer for saying that he was? Had they no apprehension that it was possible he might be so? And then what horrid guilt they should bring upon themselves in putting him to death? No. They know not, neither will they understand. They cannot even think it possible that he should be the Messiah. Though ever so evidently clothed with divine power and grace, if he appear not as they expect in worldly pomp and grandeur. Their eyes being blinded with the admiration of that. They rush on in this dangerous prosecution as the horse into the battle. They clothed themselves intentionally with this strong delusion about who Jesus is. And they're wrong. So, some questions to know and to love and to obey God to see how these principles might apply to us on this rainy Sunday here in Edgefield, South Carolina. As I mentioned before, we really have to be careful where we place ourselves in this story, don't we? Please take some time to examine yourself in light of these soldiers. How are you like the soldiers who trifled with Jesus? Do you trifle with Jesus? Do you treat Him as just a piece of the pie in your life? One friend amongst many. One voice to consider. Do you think that Jesus cannot see you? Do you think that it's... It's silly, but are there ways in your life that you think that you're shielding yourself from His view? And they always say that character is demonstrated by what you do when you're alone. As if God can't see you. As if the angels of heaven aren't your witnesses. As if the saints in Mount Zion can't also view us from heaven. Maybe all of them can't. But we can tell from Hebrews 11 that at least some of them can. Do you think in some way that God is blindfolded from you? Do you think that you can somehow shield yourself from his gaze? <clears throat> what about this? Have you ever considered this, that your sin today puts force into the mockery, the blows, and the insults of those soldiers back then? <clears throat> How do you spit on Christ today? <clears throat> Think of this. Who fed, clothed, and strengthen those evil men for their work of evil. Well, Rome, right? But God via Rome. God raised up those men to have the strength and the training that they did to be able to deliver the kind of blows that they did, the kind of insults that they did, the kind of blasphemies they were able to conjure up. So how are you like the Jewish leaders moving on from the soldiers? Refusing to listen to Christ's voice. Having your mind made up already. Refusing to bow to Him as your Lord and your King. In what ways are you perhaps unwilling to allow His gaze to come upon you? What parts of His Word as you read His Word do you ignore? not listen to. <clears throat> this is the nature of our flesh, is it not? To dig in our heels and to set ourselves against Him. 
We need to be humbled, do we not, brothers and sisters? Where our ears and our hearts would be open to Him and what He has to say to us in His Word. Each of us. Next. When you suffer for good, are you sure that you're suffering for good? Right? We can make ourselves into little self-proclaimed martyrs when in fact we're the ones who are in sin. What standard do you use to determine whether or not you are walking in goodness and indeed suffering for righteousness? What standard do you use to determine whether you are indeed walking in goodness and suffering, therefore, for righteousness' sake? How do you determine this? Do it on your own, all by yourself? Reading God's Word? All by yourself? Or do you submit yourselves to the friendships and the counsel and the relationships that God has placed into your life? Do you submit yourself to your church leaders and seek counsel from them? Do you submit yourself to the testimony of the church throughout the ages? Or are you autonomous, determining for yourself what is good and doing what is right in your own eyes? And creating a false reality that you are somehow some kind of martyr when in fact you are the one who is in sin. It's because it's real easy for us to say, oh, well, we're being like Jesus. I'm being mistreated. I'm just going to take it. Well, maybe you're not. Maybe you're the one who's in sin. So be so careful in these situations. But then going on, when you suffer for good, Are you like Christ? Think of what He did. Receiving these unexpected blows and these insults patiently. Where did Jesus go in His soul during these moments? Where do you go in your soul in moments when you know you are receiving blows that appear to be unjust? When you are receiving insults against your character that appear to be unjust, where do you go in your soul? Do you return reviling with reviling, even if only in your own mind? He entrusted Himself to His Father's righteous judgment. Is that what you do? He patiently endured and placed Himself in His Father's hands. That's where He started He never gave in to returning evil for evil. He never gave in to giving reviling for reviling. He never gave in to giving threats when He suffered. Does this define you, brothers and sisters, when you believe that you are being mistreated? Are you careful when you believe that you're being mistreated to get help from others and confirm that indeed you're being mistreated and you're not just living in a fantasy land? This is the law that we can have in our own eyes. Not reviling. Not threatening. Not reaching out for vengeance. You know, Peter saw this. Peter was close enough to have a sense of what was happening. And he wrote a book. In fact, he wrote two books in the New Testament. And it's thrilling, I think, to read his words in light of his experiences and to consider these words. Listen to Peter. What credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently. And there's our example, Jesus. Taking the blindfolding and the mocking and the beatings and the insults and the spitting and the blasphemy. Trusting Himself to His Father in those moments. If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Do you want to be commendable before God? For to this you were called because... See, you've been called to this. 
Okay, if you're a Christian, you've been called to this. You've been called to suffering for doing good. Do you understand that's a part of your calling as a Christian? If you don't understand that that's a part of your calling as a Christian, then you don't understand what life has in store for you, and you're going to be shocked. Well, let's, let's get that out of the way. Brothers and sisters, mark this in your mind. Let it be a landmark for you. You are called to suffer for doing good. Why? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. His steps after Judas kissed him. His steps bound to Annas. His steps into the halls of Caiaphas. His steps there into the council. And all his steps leading to the cross. Every step we follow in his steps. And we look to him as our example, brothers and sisters. Fixing our gaze on him. These are such simple ideas, but we don't do it, do we? We just get distracted. We think it's okay to start dreaming of vengeance. We think it's okay to start making the list of all the ways we've been reviled. Repent. Repent. Repent of that. It is the way of our flesh. It is the way of this world. Let us be like Jesus who took it patiently. Going on with 1 Peter, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in turn, when he suffered, he did not threaten. So this is the putting off and the putting on. What do we have to put off? We have to put off our fleshly, fallen, evil desire to fight back, to lash out, if only in our minds, if only in our hearts, to revile in turn, to tear the other person down who's reviled us and build ourselves up in our own mind, or to even take a threatening posture. No. Here's what we do. We follow in his footsteps. He who committed himself to him who judges righteously. It's as simple, isn't it? It is a moment of prayer. It is a moment of repentance. No, I'll not think that way. I'll not allow that unrighteousness to well up within me. I'll certainly not express it on my tongue. This is meekness. Leaving room for God's vengeance. Entrusting yourself to your Father in heaven. Think of all the things that Good things you can do if you're not stuck in unforgiveness and bitterness and reviling and threatenings. Think of all the good that you can do through forgiveness and compassion and kindness. And think of how all these dark shadows get in the way. Going on, verse 24. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. What did Jesus' patience overnight lead to? More suffering. What did Jesus' patience in the morning lead to? More humiliation. What did Jesus' patience before Pilate and Herod lead to? Scourging and the cruel, humiliating death on the cross. Don't think that your patience in suffering doesn't have a cross at the end of it for you who are called to take up your cross and follow Him. Do not think that your patience in enduring suffering is somehow guaranteed to pour hot coals on on people's heads so that they stop. You may need to endure to the death of your body patiently to the end. We're going to sing about martyrs today. The Son of God goes forth to war. And often we spiritualize things, but we need to stop and see the fullness of what's going on here. You may be called to patiently endure to your violent end. 
like Jesus in 2020. I don't know that. But that's certainly the clearest immediate application of what happened to Jesus. And that we need to be taking up our cross and knowing that he may call us to do the same thing. And what does it mean if it does? Victory for you. Where are the martyrs? The closest under the altar. We see that in Revelation. Rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer, to, to suffer for his name. Do we seek it? We're going to go out and intentionally get ourselves in trouble? No. No. But we are called to suffer for doing good. And that is why we'll be tempted to stop doing good. Romans 12. Paul puts it this way. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Repay no evil for evil and do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good the temptation for Christ in that moment was to call forth his legions of angels who were likely in heaven ready to come watching what their Lord was enduring you and I have the same temptation do not give way to evil May God bless us, brothers and sisters, to be like Christ our Lord. We pray it. We pray it at the beginning of each sermon. The last bit of the prayer that we hear each time. Father, bless us to be meek, that we may inherit the earth. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, We acknowledge to you, Lord, that even though we may understand these things with our mind, by your gracious instruction, we know that we need more. We need for you to work down deep in our hearts and souls, to drive out those monstrous urges for vengeance, to revile, to threaten. Instead, O God, we ask you, In all sincerity, Lord, to grant to us to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. When we suffer for doing good, when we walk in the calling that you've given to us, that we would simply commit ourselves to you who judge righteously. Oh God, bless us that this would be true of us, your people, here at Foothills. In Jesus' name, amen.